Hi, I'm Ben. And I'm Josh. And this is the Bad at Magic podcast, the podcast about games, life, and other things. And welcome to episode 84. So, Ben, what do you know about the collector's numbers on Magic the Gathering cards? Um, You're talking about the little tiny numbers at the bottom that is like number 43 of 246? Yes. So every set of Magic that has ever been released, they put a number. Every single card is individually numbered, and it's X of, and then whatever the total number of cards okay. in that set are. Yeah, I do know that uh, they follow a pattern. I know it's alphabetical, but I don't know if it's 100% alphabetical. Uh. And each unique card in the set gets a number. Yes, that that is what you need to know. It is alphabetical. And I was looking at the collector's numbers that start that are 84, because this is episode 84. Oh. And I found two crazy coincidences with collector's numbers of magic cards and the number 84. Awesome. Okay, so first of all, this blows my mind. Two of the power nine are collector number 84. Re- what? Yeah. I didn't realize the Power Nine weren't all from the same set. <laughs> well, and that's the thing. Um, Time Twister, which was in Alpha. The Alpha printing of Time Twister was collector number 84. Okay. And then Time Walk from Unlimited, which was the reprinting, is 84. Oh, okay. So as a reprint, it was collector number 84. But still, there was, there are nine cards in Power Nine, and two of them have the same collector's number. Okay. Well, that makes 84 a special number. There's another coincidence that I also find mind-blowing. Go ahead. Three of the cards that you play in your Ponza deck are collector number 84. What? Get out. That's awesome. Not the exact Is, is Blood Moon one of them? No, no. It's uh, Bloodbraid Elf, Lightning uh-huh. Bolt, and Forest. Because, of okay. course, Forest. <laughs> Great. Well, I, I am thankful for the number 84. And I was hoping to tee this up because this leads us right into what is going to be a very magic-heavy episode of the podcast. So, people, okay. if you don't like magic, buckle up. <laughs> and as always, we're going to try to do it with an ear and an eye towards people that don't know what it is. So, hang in there, Mom. You can do this. Josh, yeah. we need to follow up on something that you – a question that you asked in episode 83. We talked about all the sports and what were and weren't sports, and I talked about how in former British colonies they play cricket, and then we kind of asked hypothetically if that's – if the fact that the U.S. stayed in Japan following World War II is the reason that the Japanese play football. Yes. Do, and no, baseball. Sorry. Baseball, baseball. And this is one of the few questions that I throw out there in the podcast, like, oh, we'll do a follow-up, because I always expect you to do all the follow-up. This is one of the few I actually went out of my way to research, because I was curious. Okay, good, because I didn't. So <laughs> what, what, so did the Japanese play baseball because U.S. soldiers played it outside their bases following World War II? No, no, they didn't. Baseball, what? Baseball was introduced into Japan in the 1870s. And they had their first Whoa. they had their first professional league start in the 1920s, well before World War II started. That goes way back. Yeah, no. So baseball grew up in Japan, independent of baseball being brought to them by the U.S. Huh? They must have done something over the years to keep the rules in sync, because their version of baseball is almost identical to ours. Well, uh, who's to say that we didn't borrow rules changes from them? Huh? Wow, that is awesome. Okay, thanks for looking that up. Okay. Now, Josh, yesterday was Halloween. We're recording a little bit late this week, but we'll still release on time. Uh, I know your family always does a blowout, and, and even though we went to the Magic 30th anniversary in Las Vegas on the 28th through the 30th of October, you still rushed home in time to be with your family. What were your costumes this year? 
So this year, uh, back in July, we got a really late start. We started the costumes in July, and we decided we were going to go as Breath of the Wild characters. Okay. Yeah, mainstream, you're just going to be like Link and Zelda. So we didn't want to put in as much effort in the actual construction of costumes as we did the year before. The year before that, we were Hollow Knight, and we had to make everything from scratch. And it was a it was a real-time sink. It, it came right down to the wire to get everything done. This We didn't want to do that, and Zelda characters were going to be far more intricate. So um, just the way it shook out, I wanted to be Ganondorf. Like, oh, I'm I'm the tall, I'll be the bad guy, of course. It'll be awesome. Yeah. I'll make my armor and all that. And my, my, I was like, son, you should be Link. And then uh, Nicole, mom, she could be like Sheik from Ocarina of Time. And then Jane could be Zelda, easy, done, finished. But my son did not want to be Link. Really? No, my son wanted to be a bad guy, and he finally settled on one of the Yiga clan ninjas from Breath of the Wild. Which, Interesting. If you, if you don't remember that game, you'd be walking around, there'll be a random NPC that'll flag you down and try to talk to you about some inane subject. And then he'll always ask you, oh, have you heard of the Yiga clan of ninjas? Well, guess what? I'm one of them. And he throws a smoke bomb and turns into a bad guy that tries to kill you. <laughs> no wonder your son wanted to do that. That sounds awesome. I hope you got him smoke bombs. <laughs> I did not get him any smoke bombs. But uh, they also have, when you actually go into the Yiga Fortress later in the game, they have uh, what are called Yiga Blademasters. And they're, they're real giant guys that'll kill you in one hit. And they've got a more elaborate uniform, but still Whoa. in the same motif. And so we decided, like, if my son's going to be a foot uh, a Yiga Clan foot soldier, then I'll be a Yiga Clan Blademaster. And so we were both bad guys. Nice. Which then left us without a Link. So then my wife decided, oh, that's fine. She would just do, she would do Link. So we had, my daughter was Zelda. My wife was Link. And then my son and I were both bad guys. Okay, you guys looked fantastic as always. I love the poses and everything. It was great. Yeah, I put pictures on the the uh, Facebook page. Man, I keep forgetting Facebook, like my Facebook page. But I'll make sure that they're in the show notes and yeah. up on the Reddit. Yeah, I'll put them. I'll put them in the show notes. Yeah, yeah. Okay. What about you guys? Did you do Halloween, Ben, or are you um, Mr. Halloween Party Pooper so, again? So, you know, I'm seven years older than you, and we started the kid thing a lot earlier. So my kids right now are, are 12, 14, and 16, the ones that are still home in that age. And there was just enough going on that they decided they wanted to dress up and go trick-or-treating. They weren't – my kids aren't quite the ones that are like, oh, that's baby stuff. So my son put on his bard costume, primo, top-notch bard costume. My daughter, uh, 14-year-old, dressed up as B from an anime called Bee and Puppycat. I don't know. It's I'm, just, I'm not following that one. It's nope. a girl in a yellow sweatshirt with a B on it. My wife went really simple this year. And my <laughs> my other daughter was Blossom from the Powerpuff Girls, I think. Oh, that's cool. Dude, what's really funny is I remember a couple years ago, one of your kids went as Star from Star versus the Forces of Evil or something. Yes. Yeah, and, she nailed it. Yeah, that was years and years ago. And you showed me the picture like, look at this costume. I'm like, okay, great. She's a character. And it wasn't until I think this past calendar year, both my kids – found that show on Disney plus somewhere and like watched all of it. And I, I just, you know how it is when your kids are watching shows nonstop, you kind of absorb it in your yeah. peripheral. And that's when I finally clicked. I'm like, Holy crap. Ben's kid was that person like years ago. Awesome. That makes me wonder how often we get that experience where you absorb something cultural and it's just kind of idling in the background, waiting for you to connect it. <laughs> just disparate pieces of knowledge in your mind that need a connection point. Yeah, yeah, I refer to that by the Jackie Chan version of the Karate Kid movie. I call it a coat without a hook. It's just laying on the ground until you get the hook, and then once you have the hook for it, you can hang it on the hook. Ah, both are useless without the other. Right. So you sent me a question this past week and asked me if I had been watching She-Hulk. 
Ooh, are we going to do the She-Hulk now? Well, kind of. It just ended on Disney+, and I hadn't been watching it, and I was aware of it because it, the, the format, I don't know if from the future it's going to be this way, but the way it's been happening on social media is whenever Disney has been releasing a new Marvel or Star Wars property, you kind of get a fresh batch of memes that even though they aren't spoiling it are kind of just leaking out into society and with this with a giant green woman in like a lawyer skirt twerking like that's gonna find its way out into the interwebs so <laughs> i was kind of aware of all this going on and then i heard a bunch of buzz about the final episode and i did something very uncharacteristic but not my wife would never do this but i did it and that is i'm like okay this thing's like eight episodes long or whatever i don't know if i want to spend eight hours watching this thing so i'm just gonna watch the last episode and if i like it i'll go back and watch the rest of it. oh ben you're that guy <laughs> you're that guy that reads the last three pages of the book when you first get it too aren't you i, I used to do that when i was a kid i haven't done that in a long time now i'm just like i don't want to read this book but oh, i was trying to decide if i wanted to watch she hulk or not like if i thought it was fun and enjoyable and interesting and i just go back and in, and have the experience that it was without any context that episode would make no sense the things that were payoffs for me would have really been confusing though? for you yes come on i i get that there wasn't the payoff there but you could you can feel when they're telegraphing this is a payoff like okay i get that that's a payoff i don't need to know the rest of it <sighs> well so, are we going to spoil she-hulk now and talk about right. the last episode or Listen, listeners, if you don't want to spoilers for She-Hulk, look at the show notes. I put the time tags of the next segment. You can skip ahead. I texted you specifically after I watched. I feel like anyone that already wants to see She-Hulk has seen it. <laughs> the number of people that haven't watched it at this point that are going to is really small. I texted you after I watched the finale of She-Hulk because I thought it was a unique intersection of media where you and I would both appreciate aspects of it for different reasons. One, Okay, good. I can I, talk about that. Okay, good. I was I very much appreciated like the entire show. She would look at the camera at some point in the episode and have a meta discussion about what was happening in the episode. It was a, a fourth wall break, but in the way that like a narrator does, like she didn't retain knowledge from her narration into like the the plot line of the show. It was just there as like a wink to us, the audience. Yes, this is not new. My favorite show that does this is probably Malcolm in the Middle. Yes, it was very Malcolm the Middle like. Okay, you know, where he just stops and all the action behind him kind of blurs out and he just looks right at the camera and says, my mom often gets like this. Right, and just gives you a little context or tells you a little joke or lets you in on like some ironic secret, whatever. It, it, it's good. Okay, and that's so, how it so was. this series was characterized by that kind of Malcolm in the Middle-eatness. That was just one aspect of it. Like it was very yeah. well written. It was good humor. It was highbrow. Like the series is good. Go watch it. Yes. That was just one little piece of it. But what, uh, the, what was interesting is the last episode, they they didn't double down. They went all in on uh, fourth wall breaking. Like that became like the whole second half of the season finale was, you know what? We're just going to put all of our eggs in this basket and people are either going to love it or they're going to hate it. Yeah. Okay. I can see why it was polarizing. So since we're spoiling it, you know, it comes to this big conclusion and all of the main characters start getting together and everything ramps up to 11. Just all of the dials get turned up to 11. The bad guy turns into a Hulk and the romantic interest shows up and Bruce Banner shows up and everybody's there and a big fight's getting ready to break out. And she's like, time out. Hold on. Hold on. This this is too much. Yeah. The, yeah. The main character of the show looks at the camera and goes, what is even going on here? This doesn't make any sense. So she goes to the writer's room and lectures the writers. I hope those were the real writers and not actors <laughs> pretending to be the writers. 
Right. And that's, that's the whole thing is then it turns into this meta. And that's what I was trying to figure out at one point, the whole show went back to like what the, the front screen of the Disney plus app looks like on your TV. And she's like scrolling through it. She was. Yeah. Like I thought, but it it gave no indication initially. It made it seem like the, the the show stopped and it kicked you back out to the main (laughs) menu. And then her voiceover came back on and then she came out of one of the little windows and punched her way into another one. Yeah, she picked one where she could go to the Disney lot and go to the writer's room and talk to them about what they'd done. And, and they kind of sheepishly tried to defend their decisions, but it was worthwhile to give them crap over such a such a um, uh, thoughtless ending. It was, yeah, and she was giving the writers crap, and then they did all of the things that I wanted them to do. Like, they still had a big action sequence with her fighting a bunch of nameless guards like you would have to have in a Marvel show anyway because they cut all the action before, so she had to fight through a bunch of bodyguards as the She-Hulk. And then they kept acknowledging the fact that like, when she finally met the – she went to meet Kevin Feige was the, was the joke. It's like, oh, well, yes. this is all oh, Kevin's yes. idea. I forgot. She goes, like, oh, and the writer's like, pass the buck. Like, well, this is how the way Kevin wants Nobody to be. meets Kevin. And nobody meets Kevin. And she's like, well, I'm going to go meet Kevin. And it turns out, like, they made Kevin an acronym for some AI that had, like, yeah, a Yeah, like it a was movie like Gladys from, uh, from... Yeah, from Portal. Portal, that's right. But, like, all the jokes that he said, like, like for example, he goes, oh, can you please turn back into your Jennifer form? And she's like, why? And he goes, because you're costing us a lot of money every frame you're on <laughs> <In> camera. AI. <laughs> and she goes, oh, let no. me change. And he goes, no, CGI. no, no. And he goes, wait till the camera's not on you so we don't have to pay for the animation again. And then it cut back to her and she was already changed. She goes, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Like, just all so – they had just – I really appreciate that. I really like well-done fourth wall breaking, and I okay. think that was that was a, a high point for it, me. It felt very um, uh, Deadpool-y. Yeah, I agree. It was very Deadpool-y. But here's the thing. It was also very meta because she talked to writers and she talked to what was supposed to be this fictional version of Kevin Feige about the meta-analysis of what the MCU is, and I thought you would probably appreciate that. Yeah, uh, I'm trying to remember exactly what the details were other than her kind of like saying, yeah, this is the formula this tends to follow, but I don't think that that's what we should be doing here. Well, that's what that's the thing. That's the part that I thought you would enjoy is them mm-hmm. acknowledging that the Marvel Universe has fallen into this very predictable pattern of like a, a, a third act disposable CGI army fight. OK, you, you reminded me of something. So this is what made me go watch the final episode when I didn't have any intention to watch the series at all. I'd heard someone say that what happened in the final episode of She-Hulk was one of those changing the entire Marvel Cinematic Universe things along the lines of like Loki or Captain America, the Winter Soldier. So I was like, what? So I went and watched it just to see what that thing was. What is it that happened in She-Hulk that changes the MCU? And I, then I felt like I didn't find it. Well, it was the meta-analysis. It was the MCU that, like, the, the creme de la creme, like, the hot, the high-end top people acknowledging... Showing that they're self-aware of what their formula is? Yes, and uh. deliberately going out of their way in this series to write a different narrative for it. Okay. Because they even asked us, like, well, how would you end the series? Well, I think, like, this person who did the wrong thing should own up for their decision and, like... Like, take responsibility for it. Okay, you're right in pointing that out because I always complain about that in movies where the good guy gets to shoot the bad guy instead of the bad guy getting arrested and going to trial. Right, and that's exactly what happened in this one. Yeah. The person who did the wrong thing was arrested, and he's like, no, you're right, I did the wrong thing, I broke my parole, and I'm going to pay for it. 
And the whole idea is that that was this. There was this whole redemption arc with that character. With uh, I forget his real name, but it was the Abomination. Yeah. Okay. So you're right. That that was a little bit waste on me. I mean, I recognize that actor from his role in the uh, the Edward Norton version of the yep. Hulk. It was the Edward Norton Hulk movie. Yeah. Which is okay. I, I I very much appreciate they played very heavily into the fact that the Edward Norton Edward Norton movie is canon. All right, Josh, you uh, haven't convinced got, me. You, you, I'm going to give you one more chance to convince me to go back and watch the rest of She-Hulk. Tell me about Daredevil. All right, so Daredevil, like, do you want me to talk about the show Daredevil or the character Daredevil? The character Daredevil in the She-Hulk series. The character Daredevil in the MCU. Because I like Dare, the the new version of Daredevil that's in that was on the Netflix series. Yeah, he was. He also did a cameo in um, the latest Spider-Man movie. Yep. He was Spider-Man's lawyer for a minute. And he's that's the thing is by day he is a lawyer that does pro bono work for people that can't afford actual legal services trying to get justice for the little guy. And like he yeah, even had can't a – can't get behind that? Yeah. And, and, so then and then, he, then by night he's a vigilante violent guy dealing with the things he couldn't deal with as a lawyer. All right. So he – there was legal trouble. Like one of She-Hulk's clients was suing the guy that made his costume, which was also the guy that made her costume. And <laughs> I say no capes. It was a defect. He, the guy, was claiming it was a defective costume because it's supposed to be flame proof, but his boots caught on fire, and like he, it was, it was a whole thing. And so, like he hired her to sue the guy for selling him a shoddy product or whatever. And then the suit making guy, who also makes Daredevil's suit, called Daredevil to defend him in court. And so Jennifer She Hulk is there, and so is Daredevil in his you know human person or his secret identity. And they had a legal fight in a courtroom about uh, uh, liability for property. And Daredevil enjoy, did this thing. I, I don't. I've never actually been to court and seen what a real courtroom fight is like. But I enjoy courtroom drama that feels authentic. But I'm guessing this wasn't. It, no, it was very boiled down. It was not real law. It was TV law. Was it like that Nintendo DS game? Objection! Yeah, it was very much <laughs> like that. But anyway, what happened after that is the trial thing happened. And then in the background, the something happened. The guy that was suing the guy, like he did something wrong and they threw the case out. Okay. But then the guy with the defective suit kidnapped the guy that made his suit and he was just going to take, take it out on his own. And She-Hulk gets a call from her client, the guy who did the kidnapping, unbeknownst to her. It was like, I'm being chased by this guy. You've got to come save me. And it was Daredevil chasing her defendant. And so she went after him and it was her and Daredevil getting this brawl like in a parking garage before like they were fighting for a minute before they realized and they stopped like hey he usually just fights thugs with guns i'm guessing he doesn't stand much of a chance against her well and they did a really good job with this because they had a lot of interaction but for the most part he was just trying to get away from her like he was just trying to track or run after the guy that kidnapped his client right but finally like they were fighting and even he goes wait wait wait, hold up like we should talk about this and she goes Actually, yeah, you're right. We should. And they stopped and they had a conversation, figure out what was exactly going on and realized they're both on the same side, just just from different perspectives. Oh, dang it, Josh. Oh, oh. And then they teamed up to go do the right thing. Okay. 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 I'll give it a chance. Oh, and here's here's the best part is Daredevil had this great speech about like, she's like, why are you this vigilante hero at night? And he goes, what, isn't it appealing to like defend justice during the day? And then if justice gets it wrong to go exact it yourself at night? (laughs) that's his whole thing yeah that's his whole thing okay all right all right little do you know but you walked into my trap josh why on earth have you not watched andor on disney plus yet Uh, all right 
So, Ben, you have to draw so, a spoilers, Venn... Spoilers for Star Wars. Spoilers for Star Wars, again, already. Uh, whenever it comes to viewing anything, any kind of media in my house, you have to draw a Venn diagram of oh, who is who wants to watch this There's a media. complex family dynamic going on here. Yes, I want to watch Andor. My wife is wishy-washy on it, but my son absolutely wants to watch Andor. That means the viewing time that I have for Andor is restricted to times that he is awake and available. Like after school, after activities, no. before no. dinner, before bedtime. We have none of that exists. The, there is <laughs> there is no after school time in Sunday afternoon. First, that's the thing. It's always the only thing we have is weekends and. Every weekend before this has been filled with making costumes and okay. like getting okay. stuff done. I get it. You haven't not watched Andor out of negligence like you have with Top Gun Maverick. <laughs> no, that's just pure. It's almost spite at this point. Like I just don't want to see it because people it's keep because, telling me to. It's because of your feelings toward pilots. I know, Josh. Okay. Ooh, that, it really <laughs> might be it. That might be it. Um, it, I, I can't say enough glowingly wonderful things about Andor. For every bad thing we've said on this podcast about the new Star Wars trilogy, about the prequels, about some of the weird spinoff properties, Andor is this gleaming, beautiful, precious gem in the Star Wars universe. It is engrossing. It is interesting. It is intricate. It is everything I wanted the next Star Wars thing to be. Every time I watch it, I'm doing like you described, where I squeal like a schoolgirl, just thrilled at the beautiful sets, the details, the intricacy. Oh my gosh, I can't. I love it so much. I, I can't wait to watch the next episode. It's so great. How many cameos does Mando have in it? Uh, I haven't seen any yet, and that's the thing. It's not. It's not pulling any cheap, like try to get views <laughs> kind of punches here. It's just. I mean, we've met this character before, and we've met a lot of the characters before, and we know what's going to become. But it doesn't have that weird feeling that it had in some of the others, where because you know the outcome, the story feels dull and inevitable. Like, okay. there's real drama. Hmm. All right. Well, I mean, I'm going to watch it. I just okay. don't know when. All right. Well, I want you to watch it so that we can talk about it on the podcast. Uh, I, I will do my best to watch it in the future. All right. I got one other thing I want to follow up with you, Josh. Okay. You you in the past have said something to me. I don't know if this is a transformation that you've made or you just don't realize you've been inconsistent about it. So I, I know this is get, probably putting on your heels. But you said something to me last time when I was talking about uh, – we were talking about um, inkjet printers and the business model of selling you the printer at a loss and then selling you printer cartridges that are expensive in order to make up the cost. Yes. And you were like – I'm going to do whatever I can to stick it to the man and not abide by their business model. Uh, the Yeah, the inkjet printer model. Yes. Okay. So in the past, I had said something to you along the lines of, why are you paying so much for that thing? And you said, Ben, I'm a consumer. <laughs> there are people out there that don't, you know, that don't contribute to this thing, but I, I buy or give or, or, you know, partake of this thing and I spend my resources on it so that it's funded and there will be more of it. So what I will say is that I am never inconsistent in my actions, but uh -huh. I am quite frequently inconsistent in the reasons for those actions. Okay, so what's the difference between these two things? I, I don't have a specific example of the, the blatant consumerism that you're talking about, like me paying full price for something because I want to and I want yes. to support the it, thing. And that's what it was. It was something I'd noticed like that and pointed out and you were like, it's okay. Well, I – so – Because I kind of said the same to you. I'm like, I, I get that their business model is to sell me a cheap printer and then sell me ink cartridges, but whatever. I'm, well, I'm, I'll am i just partake in it. 
Well, in this case, I think part of my problem was I was not paying full price for the manufacturer-suggested ink cartridges, and I was buying the knockoffs, and I think that was contributing to the issues that I had. Uh. And so now with the laser printer, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pay full price for everything to make sure it just works and does the thing that I want it to do. And I okay. think my uh, there is a transformation that's happened to me in time, and that is whereas before I was willing to die on every hill I stood on, now I look at how high the hill is before I decide if I'm going to die on it or not. <laughs> what And what does a hill being high have to do with whether or not you want to die on it? I don't well, fully it, get the it, metaphor. Yeah, in, in this mixed metaphor, um, the higher the hill, the more important the thing is to me. Oh, okay. So I, I feel like I, I feel like the height of the hill of the, inter, the, the, the printer cartridges is not high enough anymore for the amount of energy that I have to fight those fights. When I was a young, brash, in, like single guy that had all nothing but energy and, and disposable spit, income. <laughs> yeah. I, I could fight every fight and like not get tired. Now I've right. got to pick and choose my battles. So what's a high hill right now? What's a high hill? Yeah. Hmm. I don't know. Parenting. I think parenting took over like most of the hills that I have energy to deal with. Uh, okay. We'll get to this a bit later, Josh, but I got to say, I was impressed to the degree to which, while you wanted to go with me to the Magic 30th anniversary party in Vegas, you were also very – you scheduled it all around being there for your family on what was a traditionally a very fleshman family togetherness holiday. And it was worth it. Like it made for a really rough weekend and I'm still partially recovering from the sleep deprivation. But like being there for my kids yesterday and walking around doing the trick-or-treating was totally worth it. Yeah. Josh, we've talked in this podcast in the past about the economics behind free-to-play mobile games, where, you know, the difference between a good one and a bad one is whether or not they make the paying part of it necessary or just optional but value-added. Okay, yes. And I realized when I was flying to Vegas this weekend that the airline I was on follows that same model. Okay. Which airline did you fly on? Uh, It was Allegiant. Uh, and I've flown a lot of budget airlines, and some of them I had really bad experiences with. Ryanair, Frontier, terrible experiences on those airlines. Allegiant follows the same model in that they cut out a lot of their costs by only by not having any connecting flights. They pick lesser-known regional airports, and they fly to de- on-demand destinations, like from Shreveport, Louisiana to Las Vegas, Nevada. And they just have it on the peak times, and they fill their plane up with people. On one way, it's people going there. On the other way, it's people coming home. Like, there's no... <laughs> Mixed traffic. Okay. So it's basically using big data to figure out what a good commuter flight would be and scheduling it in advance. Yes. And then they follow a lot of the other paradigms of budget airlines. You don't, there's no, you don't get to choose your seat. You don't get to check a bag, nothing like that, unless you pay extra. But if you want to go on their airplane with just a backpack and have a crappy seat wherever they sit you, you can get a really low price airfare. Okay. So that's kind of like, Getting a mobile game for free and installing it on your your phone. Like, it just does the basic stuff. So, while I was sitting there and they were coming down the aisle, and normally it's a given that they'll give you a free drink on the flight, they were selling drinks and snacks. Even and, water? Like, they, they yes, wouldn't have given Yes, even water. You- it was $3 for a bottle of water. Wow. Okay. You didn't have to pay to go to the bathroom. There, at least there was that. Oh, well, that's nice, yeah. The seats didn't recline. There was no TVs anywhere. The, the, there was not even really a tray table, per se. It was this little flap that went up and down, and there was some crying kids next to me that moved it up and down the whole time. Click, 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 click. It was crazy. Uh, 
but I realized I was okay with most of it. Like, I get the free-to-play business model on a phone, and here it was on an airline. Same same model, almost barely uh, disguised. Well, and that's the thing. As long as they're upfront with what you're getting. As long as you don't feel like you've been swindled. Like, yes. You're not like halfway to Vegas and realize I didn't get half of what I paid for. You. Yes. Like I, like I flew Ryanair and like when I got to the airport, if you hadn't checked on at least two hours in advance on the app, they charged you a fee. Oh, that's ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. It was. It, it, you felt swindled. Okay. Okay. Right. So there's that. Now, another modern technology transportation service is ride shares and i use ride shares since i think since the last time you and i went to vegas three years ago so my uber app was installed on my new phone but i hadn't logged in so i installed it and brought it back (laughs) up and i was like oh man i hadn't signed on to this in a long time there was a lot of changes to it so you and i took a couple of ubers together we took quite a few ubers together because in an effort well it wasn't just you and i it was also your kids and then also they moved the venue so whereas before it was walking distance, we could cross one street and be there. Now it was like three miles away and we had to we had to ride share there every time. And there was no close hotel. It was a whole thing. So, yes, we took quite a few Ubers this past weekend. And uh, every I feel like every Uber trip was a little microcosm, like a, a little demonstration of societal contracts, like encased in one little 10 minute interaction with another person. Yes. Yeah. It, well, where else are you kind of thrust into a very close interpersonal situation with a perfect stranger? Well, and I learned some things about Uber on this trip specifically because I took so many of them so close together. Like, for example, I've discovered that Uber drivers will ask you one or two questions initially right at the beginning of the ride, and f- they will gauge your answers to uh, they correlate that to how much you want them to talk for the rest of the ride. Uh-huh. So if you're very like I, I did this specifically, there was a couple where I gave like short clipped one word answers, like the bare minimum information necessary, and they didn't talk to me for the entire rest of the ride. And there were others where I deliberately like engaged them for a sentence or two, and then they kept up like a kind of small talky conversation the entire ride. And so I, I guess that's just ubiquitous in the industry for ride sharing is figuring out how much your passengers want to talk to make them feel good. Yeah, and I feel like that's par for a social norm, except that you aren't normally thrust into those situations where you're talking to a close personal stranger for, you know, you're going to be together for 10 minutes with no one else around. Yeah, um, I realize that you're allowed to change stuff in the car, whereas before, like, even in taxis, I would get in there and I wouldn't touch anything. I wouldn't do anything because this is not my car and I didn't feel comfortable. But yeah, I was in these one of Ubers. our drivers kind of gave us some cues. He was like, hey, is the temperature okay? Like asked, yeah, and like was asking questions and stuff like that, which is nice of him, but I don't know if he was actually going to change anything. But this was the first time where I started like, you know, I put like the armrest down in the back seat once. And then I, I rode the windows down a couple of times because I, apparently it's better for gas mileage to just be zero AC and sweltering the entire day if you're an Uber driver. The weather was really nice. It, it was nice, but it was still warm sometimes in the sun okay. if you weren't. Like, I rode the window down sometimes, Ben. Gosh. Uh, all right. All right. Now, what was also very interesting is I also sometimes, because we were riding together, I got to be a third-party observer into some of these little microcosms of social interaction. Oh, yeah. I enjoy these experiences. Sometimes if I think the person's really intriguing, I'll kind of probe them, ask about their career, ask about what it's like to be an Uber driver, find out about their life. I I have been in in an Uber with you when you take an interest in the person and you have an in-depth conversation with them, and I just kind of tune out. And I have also, 
it, this is the first time in a weekend where Ben, I, I have to tell this story. We had an Uber driver. Um, I'm just going to pick a name at random. Let's call him Julio. Okay. We had Julio the Uber driver, and you asked him a question. And this question was in reference to something we had spotted the day before. It doesn't matter what the question was. There was a thing that we saw outside of the car one time, and you asked a follow-up question of Julio about that same thing. Right. It was. It was would have been some kind of historical event that probably would have been widely known in the community. And I had moved away from there two decades before, and I wanted to know why it had changed. Yeah, you were asking for like a time span. When about did thing X happen? And Julio, I don't know if he misinterpreted your question or if he misinterpreted like your back and forth with him or whatever. But he took that as a sign that you wanted to be one of those pre- people that have a constant conversation for the remainder of the ride. Yes. And so he started in on what was his answer. That and drifted opened into... the floodgates. <laughs> yes. Which is not unexpected. The guy was chatting. He wanted to chat. It had been utterly quiet up to that point. What was unexpected is you did the thing that I am touted for on this podcast as being the one that would have done. Like, <laughs> Maybe you I, taught it to me. If I told this story and said, which person do you think did this? Everybody with hands down would have said it was me. Uh, but all it right, was go you. ahead and out me. So at one point, Ben interrupted our Uber driver, Julio, and said... Who had diarrhea of the mouth. Quit, quit defending yourself. And Ben goes... <laughs> Almost verbatim, you answered my question, Julio. Thank you. And like that, like just shut him down that hard. <laughs> I don't see what's wrong with that. Like you had the like the inflection and the tone of voice that of, of dismissing an airman that had like egged your house. Like it was <laughs> it was what? I was so uncomfortable in that instance. All I could do was laugh and immediately pull out my phone and re- take a note of that conversation. Josh, so I, could talk I want about you it. to appreciate the profoundness of the feeling you had in that moment and consider how often you've given other people that feeling in life. Like the time I was in the car with you and you told off one of our fellow lieutenants. And then everyone's sitting in the car like, <laughs> well, guess we're going to stare awkwardly out the window now. Well, here's the difference is, uh, was I uncomfortable? I, I I was laughing because I thought it was funny, but like no, I don't know. Everyone I... else felt like you did when I told Julio to stop talking. Okay, okay. Well, touche then. You taught me something in that trip, and what it's like to be a third wheel in one of these double awkward conversations that I so, that I love to to but inflict on people. But what do you people. think the consequence is when you accidentally open the Uber driver floodgates and you want to try to close them again? You think you just have to tolerate it? Yeah, I mean that's the social contract, right? If somebody's doing something that can't is, I can't I be like, no, 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 you misunderstood me. No, because that's considered rude. What you did uh, was undeniably rude, and that that mean because you violated the social contract. Yes, he may have misinterpreted it from his perspective or from your perspective, but he wasn't doing anything outside the bounds of what he was allowed to do in that social setting. But you did be by by <laughs> telling him to stop talking. I don't want to talk to you anymore. I like, didn't say that. That's a, that's you, you. That's not the words you said, but that's like what you said. All right, listeners, weigh in uh, in on the Facebook or on the subreddit. I want to hear what you say. What you got to say? If you were in an Uber, you got five minutes left in your ride. You accidentally opened the Uber driver floodgates, and they're just going on and on. And you want them to stop talking so you can continue, can continue talking to your companions. Uh, what do, do you just suck it up and take it, or do you try to get them to stop? 
Now, let me be clear. I'm not saying what you did was wrong. I'm saying <laughs> uh, what you did was a violation of the social contract, okay. and, I'm, and I'm proud of you. <laughs> oh, poor Julio. I still tipped him and gave him five stars. Oh, I gave every – that's their job. Like, they got me to where I was going to go. I was alive when I got there, and I didn't hate the driver, so I gave them all yeah. five stars. Okay. Everyone, lower your expectations for Uber drivers, okay? They're doing the best they can. Yeah. I, and I had some good ones. Josh, I want to do a quick bad at sports. And I say bad at sports because we talked about sports last time, and I remembered there was something that I want to talk about that I didn't. It's probably a childhood trauma that goes into why I'm a spike when it comes to playing Magic the Gathering. Oh, okay. So when I was a child, my parents didn't get, I was homeschooled for several years. Um, And then even once I got into school, we moved so frequently, I never really settled into like a sports program where I felt like I belonged. So one instance in which I tended to be able to have an opportunity to play full on, full up competitive group sports was family reunions. That's, that's not the place for full up hardcore competitive sports, Ben. I know, Josh, that's the problem. So on both sides of my parents' families, my mom, I think, has seven siblings and my dad has five. And there's just huge families with lots of kids. And whenever we would get together, there'd just be a ton of people around. And there was usually a good dozen or so right in a tight group surrounding your immediate age. And sometimes I was at the low end of the range and sometimes I was at the high end of the range. But usually what we would do is go out and start a game. Football baseball one ill-advised time i put on some boxing gloves and got knocked out by my cousin who outweighs me by like 100 pounds yeah you you asked for that by putting those gloves on yeah i don't remember anything between seeing stars and waking up on the ground (laughs) uh and that probably explains a lot but one of the things that was really really frustrating for me and usually turned into a conflict between me and my father was when we would start playing and then the tinier kids would see and want to join in And I think you saw this immediately. And it would turn a competitive event into a pander to the youngest child event. Yeah, because everybody, we're just here to have fun, Ben, you freaking competitive psycho. Yeah. (laughs) So, and it always made me mad. Like, why do we got to, why do we got to cater to the little kids? I just want to play baseball. You're, you're that guy. You're the guy I hated in college when I was forced to play intramural volleyball and they wouldn't let me play because I wasn't good enough. I'm only halfway to my point. So I had this snarling, ferocious, competitive urge inside of me that wanted to play baseball all out. You know, like sliding into home plate as hard as you could to knock the ball out of the catcher's hand so you could score a run. Like that kind of thing. That makes you a bad person, Ben. (laughs) in family reunion baseball and my dad would always grab me by the scruff of the neck and say we're having fun with the little kids here and he would overly demonstrate that what you do in family reunion baseball you let the little kids run around you pretend to try to tag them and miss you it's okay if they run to the wrong base you just stop you you know like one of those uh, clips on on youtube where like they they bring the the water boy in and hand him the ball, and both teams kind of have this pack to let him score a touchdown like that. And it utterly – I'm still going to be bad, Ben. It utterly breaks the integrity of the game and removes all fun from it. It's removes, just, it removes all fun. It's all just, fun by yes, letting – all the, fun. It just 
sucks the fun out of it. It turns into like this scam, the sham of a pretend mock sport that has nothing to do with an actual sport. Uh, all right, hang on a second. Let me reiterate your point. Your point is that letting little kids have fun removes all the fun from the fun that you're trying to have. I think it's been well established on this podcast that when I taught my kids to play Magic the Gathering, I always played to win and beat the tar out of them for 10 years. You also told them that there's no Santa Claus. You also (laughs) told them that there's no Tooth Fairy. Like, there is just no fun to be had in the rich household. It is dog-eat-dog in that place. You make dinner and don't tell anybody it's ready. You sit down and eat it. You get in the car and drive to the the theme park by yourself because they weren't ready in time. Good Lord, man. All right, so here's the other half. Here's, Here's the other shoe to drop. I fought this for years, and there was family reunions like every summer, and and my dad and I would have this conflict. And I finally realized I didn't learn to enjoy it, but I learned to do it. I learned that what how to play family reunion baseball. You that's called tolerance, Ben. It's so. What's wrong with tolerance, Josh? <laughs> well, I'm just everyone saying tolerates things. You just told me yeah, you tolerate I, talky Uber drivers. I know you should have learned that lesson way earlier than you did. I'm just saying I learned the lesson. My dad was teaching the <laughs> lesson. I was learning the lesson. How to play family reunion baseball. But inside of me, the fire was burning. The, f- the, the fire that wanted to burn down every other person that got in my way. That wanted to cleat the kid five years my junior in the face that was trying to tag me out at home plate. And so when I play Magic the Gathering, I kind of let that out a little bit. It's still in there. And it turned into this outlet for me to like <laughs> slide into home base, you know? I so I'm not gonna lie. I was watching you play one of your modern games um, at the tournament this past oh, yeah. weekend, and I I didn't have anything going at the moment, so I decided to film it. I asked your opponent, "Is it okay if I film?" He said, "Yes." And so I filmed over your shoulder, and I was trying to do a rolling commentary on things that were happening on the table. And what was awesome was when we got to the point in the game where you had him dead to rights and everyone knew it to the point where I had to stop commentating (laughs) because the only comment I had left was, okay, so Ben's opponent is basically dead now. He's just stalling the game because he wants to feel better about himself or wants to feel like maybe he has a decision. Or maybe if he takes those two cards and rubs them together real hard, they'll make a third one that'll save him from this unsavable scenario. Uh Uh-huh. It was like that. yeah. But, like, I could see the tension, like, growing in your body as he was, like, dirtling, doing nothing, knowing that you had already won. Like, you just, you had all this tension building, like, just tell me I won. Just tell me I won. I beat you. Tell me that I have won. And when he finally did, you could see it, like, your whole body just, like, relax. Like, yes. Ah, it's about time. I think you nailed it. Now, I always try to be polite and respectful of my opponents. I'm not cheating. I'm not being mean. I'm not rules lawyering or stuff. But I want to win, Josh. (laughs) I want to win. Now, in that tournament we went to last week, it wasn't a tournament. It was a celebration of 30th anniversary of Magic Gathering. I gave every one of my opponents a Bad at Magic dice. And some of them that have never listened to this podcast before are potentially listening right now, including the one you just talked about. Ooh, apologies to that guy. Uh. Two rounds before that, I played against a girl that was playing a combo deck. And in the third and final game of our match, we ended the game with me, I think, at like 25 life and her with no permanence on board. Like no creatures, <laughs> no lands, no nothing. I blew up everything. 
Did you kick her dog too? Did you like knock her stuff off the table before you were done? I don't know. So this is kind of the question. Do I owe them as like a courtesy to do, do you know, do you have to play family reunion baseball when you're playing Magic the Gathering? It's a game. Like like uh, so here's the thing is you have to recognize that that other people want out of this game things that are different than you. Yeah, some people are like you and they want to be cutthroat ultra competitive and they're there for the wins and that's it and there's no consoling them if they lose. Other people are like me. I was there wanting to crack jokes and have fun and express myself in a stupid deck building way the entire time that I was there. Okay, and but so- are you going to like not put the foot down on the gas if you see an opportunity to take advantage in the game just oh, no, so no, they no. feel I- better? No, no, no. No, no, no. I'm not pulling any punches, but okay. I'm but I'm going to be cracking jokes with them the whole time. Like it's like there was a couple of times where I pointed out the optimal play to my opponents that didn't see a different line during the match or after the match. During during the match, like huh. I had I had an opponent that uh, he he played Sensei's Divining Top. Ugh, I wanted to open that card so bad. He played Sensei Sensei's Divining Top, and if you've never played with it before, there are some complex interactions that you can do with it by stacking triggers in certain ways. Yeah, and there was one situation where that was kind of important or could have been. And so in that moment, he was struggling with what to do. And I explained to him, like, well, depends on what you're trying to do. If you want to do this, then you stack it this way. If you want to do this, you do it this way. And I think what you're doing was in the real spirit of that event. But yeah. I would have waited until after the match to explain it to him. <laughs> it, that specific instance. I might have still explained it, but I would have waited until after. Uh, there was another opponent I had um, where... Within the first three minutes of the game, it was clear that, yes, she had played Magic before, but maybe like a week before. Like she has not played a ton of Magic. And so I I, I recalibrated and I was like, well, I'm going to steamroll her because her deck building is terrible. So I'm, I, I pulled the throttle way back and I helped her walk through the interactions and explain things and make sure she was knew what the decisions that she was doing meant. So Magic the Gathering is a fickle mistress. And every now and then when you play against someone like that, if they're just know enough fundamentals that they can just keep the bicycle upright, sometimes you can get some bad breaks, they can get some lucky breaks, and a person that made a bad deck and doesn't have very good fundamentals can beat you. How does that make you feel when that happens? So uh, I can't deny that, yeah, if you lose to somebody that you feel like that's an expectations management thing. Like I sit down and then you gauge your opponent. And if you gauge your opponent, you expect like, oh, okay, this is going to be an easy win. And then you lose your bad feelings come from your broken expectations, not from the losing itself. Yeah. Now that's a situation in which I'm very careful not to do the things that people that have been in the reverse situation for me of that do, where they say rude things to you. Like they, they say they complain oh. about luck or, or uh, here, this was my favorite is like, Oh, you didn't win. I lost. Yeah. That that's just a real, like, why, why, why? It's like a kick in the teeth. Who cares? One time I was playing a very high stakes tournament, a uh, big cash prize. And I beat one of my opponents in a really good matchup for him. Like he should have beaten me nine times out of 10, but he had bad draws, I had good draws, and I beat him. And he was a solid player with good fundamentals that kept good hands, and I felt like I just got the right cards and played well and beat him. Now, in that situation, I want my skill and decisions to be validated, but I also have to recognize that he got unlucky. And he didn't do what someone else would in that situation might have done. Is it, oh, you just got lucky, or you got good draws, or you whatever, I should have beaten you, this wasn't fair. And I asked him about it. I'm like, why didn't you say those things I expected you to say? And he says, oh, that's not for you. I'll do that to my friends later. 
I'll congratulate you on good play. Oh, well, that's one way. And to I was it, I like, guess. man, that was refreshing. <laughs> uh, one of the magic streamers I watch whenever you can tell whenever he gets really salty about a bad loss or bad draws or whatever. Like you can see it in his face and he gets all tense because he's very competitive. But then he'll, he'll, he has a saying and he goes, that's magic, baby. And like he'll just say that a couple of times. And like the idea is just reinforcing in his head that like it's a game. Sometimes the game plays out that way. Let it go. There's a random aspect to it. Yes. Yeah. Nice. I think that's a good attitude. I think that's transferable to life. So, Mom, if you're still there, (laughs) (laughs) sometimes just random stuff happens and you lose when you should have won and things go badly. And you know what? If you can just be like, it's okay. Man, that's even, we can take that even a step farther back because I tell my kids this all the time. You can't control the world. You can't control the people in the world. The only thing you can control is your reaction to all of it. And this is just one more extension of that. Okay. Well, speaking of your kids, you mentioned to me uh, when we got to Vegas that Uh, you had a teary goodbye. So let's hear some bad at parenting. Bad at parenting. All right. So let me paint you a picture with my imagination brush, Ben. It's Thursday night. I had just gotten off of work and I am frantically doing all of the parental things that I normally do. Um, I can't remember if I took my son to football practice that night or if my wife did i'm not sure we had a bunch of after school stuff that was happening oh you know what no it was my wife took my son to football practice um and i stayed at work late trying to pad out my hours because i was going to be gone on friday and so i started packing up all my things and getting everything ready because the idea was i was leaving first thing the morning like i had to get up at four in the morning on friday to make my flight and my daughter, as we we're doing the bedtime routine, she comes back out with my wife who was helping her get ready for bed and she's in tears and she comes in and she gives me a big hug and she sits on my lap and she goes, I don't want you to go. And I was like, oh, sweetie, it's just for the weekend and I'll be back and I'll call you on the phone and I will FaceTime you every night. And she goes, but I don't want you to go. I will miss you too much. I'm like, but it's, <laughs> oh, that's adorable. It's just two days, sweetheart. She goes, you're going to go play games? Yeah, I'm going to go see Uncle Ben, and I'm going to play my favorite game in the whole world, and we're just going to do that all weekend. She goes, but isn't your family more important than your game? (laughs) What are you raising, Josh? This child is a monster. She is an emotional terrorist, and she uses her powers for evil. (laughs) Just like the costume that won the cosplay contest. So... In the moment, I was just completely dumbstruck. Like, that, she's, well, that those words came forth out of her child mouth. Well, no, but like, I feel like she played the ultimate, like, like she went straight to nuclear war. Like, don't, I'm over don't. here, like, skirmishing, and she went straight to, like, total, like, scorched earth destruction. Josh, why do you hate your family? Yeah, exactly. That's what she did to me. Uh huh. And wow, so, how did she learn that at age seven? I have colonels that are just learning to do that. I don't know, Ben. I, I think it's. It, I think it runs in my family, and and that scares me sometimes. Emotional terrorism. Yeah, it's in my genetics. I didn't get that. It must have skipped a generation. When okay, I to my daughter. All right. So what did you say? I didn't say anything. My wife, who was in the room, completely bails me out, and she goes, "Well, doesn't Daddy deserve a break sometimes too?" And like that was that that was like the last bit of argument that <sighs> could be had. Wow. Thank you, Nicole. Yes, thanks, Nicole. That's super nice of you. And, and she goes, but I don't want you to go. I'll miss you. I go, oh, well, I'll miss you too. It'll be three days. I'll be back before you know it. And I will bring you a souvenir. I think that's what kind of iced the cake. That, okay. that got us over that hump. And she was like, well, I don't want you to go, but if you'll bring me back toys. 
then I guess that's acceptable. Okay, so now I see why you prioritize that so highly. You're like, I- I'll be back. I got to go to the vendors. I've got something important to do. And you came back with this little plush dragon, I think. Yep. We okay. came back, little plush dragon. My daughter loves it to death, has slept with it every night. And I think she named it Darkwing. I'm not sure. Awesome. We're, st- we're still floating names. Okay, well done. Whew. So if you had known, you probably could have started with that and not had to suffer through the don't you love me more than, than magic. Well, no, that's not true. You can't open a negotiation with like the the, the thing that you're going to do because then she's just going to talk you up to the next level. So no, you have to start with nothing. Ooh, that that that's, sounds... Haven't you ever seen it? Like, all right. All right um, uh, the Greatest Showman. There's a class negotiation song between uh, the two main characters. And he's like, I was like, oh, Ooh, I, this is great. Yeah, the, he starts like, well, I guess I can give you seven. And the other guy's like, no, that's fine. I'll take 18. And the whole, like at the end of the song is them negotiating each other back down to 10% is what they finally settled on. But that's the idea is both sides start way outside of what they actually want until they both come to a place that overlaps their vendor. But how does she know this? She wouldn't be able to describe what you just said. It's that's the thing. That's the trait that skipped my that skipped me and went into her is this this emotional intelligence that is subconscious to her. Okay. Wow. All right, Josh, I want to do a bad at text segment really fast. Bad at technology. Um, Okay, you are going to be tempted to make the most lowbrow, sophomoric, lazy joke possible at this. And I need you to try to resist, okay, if you can, if that's possible. How, how, I don't know, but if it's really funny. So I was on my computer and I was having that thing happen where I was getting ads and all of the frames of like the news sites I was going to and stuff that must have come from something I searched. Yeah. But I, I'm convinced that wasn't possible. Like, I don't okay. think my kid was logged into my account and I know I didn't click on this and I know I didn't do it, but everywhere I went, I was getting ads for homecoming dresses. <laughs> Come on, Josh, you can do this. Stay with me. No, 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 no. Like, no, no, no. high I'm, school I'm... teenager, it's homecoming season. They're advertising to be homecoming dresses everywhere. And I swear, Josh, I have not Googled this. I've not searched it. I didn't click on it. I didn't even linger on an image of a homecoming dress as I was scrolling through through Instagram. Ben, of course you didn't. You don't need to. Google knows how old your kids are. They know when homecoming season <laughs> is. They know what your needs are. I just couldn't. Fi- I was I was dumbfounded because it was like three websites. I'm like, why is everybody trying to sell me homecoming dresses? <laughs> this was a different kind of targeted advertising. There's the targeted advertising where you and your wife are talking about, you know, what? we should get a new couch. Hmm, we should get a new couch. And then all of a sudden, all of your banner ads are for couches. Well, yeah, I could see that after you Googled new couch once. Oh, no. Do you have like a Google Assistant or like a Nest or an Alexa they or something? They swear they're not doing that. They are doing that. They no. can swear all they can swear all they want. That stupid thing listens to every word I say. No one in this house talked about homecoming dresses. It no. might be like you said that they just have demographics for us and they know I'm the parent of teenagers and it's homecoming season and they're trying to sell me homecoming dresses. Maybe that's the explanation. It could also be the homecoming dress manufacturers are just ramping up their price per bid on the banner click ads. Yeah. Okay. All right. That makes me feel better. Yeah. That is probably not because you're uh, Google searching, you know, like nope, team triple X videos. You can do like, it. You, it's come probably on. not for that. It's Josh. most likely because it's good de- targeted demographic data. <sighs> you couldn't do it. I almost made it through though, Ben. <laughs> For Bad at Logic today, Josh, because it's an even episode, uh, I have a um, 
logical fallacy. Um, and this is the logical fallacy of composition division. So I'll read the definition, then we'll talk about it. These okay. are This is yin and yang. They're opposites, but they're given in a unit. Co the fallacy of composition division is assuming that what's true about one part of something has to be applied to all or other parts of it. Ooh. Ooh, this is a good one. This is the, this almost feels like this is where um, stereotyping or like all the isms like sexism or ageism or racism come from. Yes, and the opposite, assuming that something that's true of a whole is true about the parts of it or something that's true of a part is true about the whole. Yeah, that's stereotyping. Right. But both directions, composition and division. They're, okay. They're both. I, I think we experienced this specifically. I think I talked to you about this specifically this yeah, past Yeah, I kind of lectured you about it, uh, if you, you remember, did. and I said we'd be doing this for bad at logic. You, you called me out on, rightfully, you called me out on this this fallacy that I was making because we are, right, so we were going through the health and safety check before we went into the big tournament. Yep. And it was before the doors opened. And so everybody that was going to go into this, the main stage area, the, the whole convention was all standing out in front in one giant group. And so you got this one snapshot of a crowd of people that are hardcore gaming nerds. We're all wearing backpacks filled with collectibles. Yes. Now, you and I both know that there is a, there's a bell curve to every population. And sure. this, is, this is one where that bell curve is skewed slightly to the side of kind of a little bit of anti-establishmentism, a little bit of like radical hair dye do. And like, um, yeah, I'd th say that's probably true. There's a lot of stereotypes associated with the hardcore gaming culture, right? And you and I are probably not the middle of the bell curve. We're definitely one or two standard deviations from what is average, I think. But we have a bunch of people surrounding us in our group. Yes. And I was incorrectly like picking out uh, individuals that were probably a couple standard deviations to the other side of the bell curve. Uh, there was always going to be a handful of people in this population that have bad uh, physical hygiene, uh, bad physical fitness, um, substandard uh, choices for their apparel. Like just not not blatantly like bad things, but definitely like aggravating or like confrontational things yes. that they were wearing or statements that they were making. And you were using the composition fallacy to refer to those people as gamers. Yes. The specific comment that I made was I, I really love the kind of content and things that are uh, that come from gaming culture. But I don't like a lot of the people that are associated with gaming culture. I think my exact response was, Josh, we are those people. <sighs> yeah. And you again, you correctly called me out on stereotyping. It, it, what it really boiled down to in that moment was, it, this is the bad thing. This is this is the the this is where you have to realize it's a logical fallacy and stop yourself from doing it. I experienced yeah. that moment because I was looking at like one or two specific guys in this crowd. Like, I hate being associated with you. I don't want to be in the same demographic as you because I don't want to, somebody to stack me next to you and say we're the same. Hmm. But that's not what happens. And they are not the usual suspects when it comes to this thing. And they are not the, the, the flag, the poster boys of, of this community that I'm a part of. And so you rightfully called me out that you're making a logical fallacy and you're doing the composition division thing. And you need to realize that they are outliers. So there was a there's an ancient parable, and I did some research on it trying to figure out the origins of it. And I can't find, but it kind of smacks up like an Eastern uh, fable. 
and it's called The Parable of the Blind Men and the Elephant. Have you ever heard this one before? <laughs> no, I don't think I have. Okay. So there's a group of seven blind men, and they all come up to an elephant, and each one reaches out to try to figure out what it is, and they all touch a different part of the elephant. One touches the toenails, one touches the leg, one touches the hair, one touches the tusk, one touches the tail, and they all describe what they see, what they feel with their hands as being representative of the entire thing. And then because they all have a different experience when touching it, then they get into argument about what it is because of the composition fallacy. Okay, because they have such a limited experience with the whole that they're overgeneralizing their overgeneralizing stereotyping. Yeah, that makes sense. And I was doing that. I was partially doing that same thing by pointing out the 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 worst of the bunch and saying I don't want to be associated with that. Yeah. Okay. Hmm. So for bad English, I want to talk about an interesting social norm I saw when I was deployed with the British forces. And one of the things I saw is what they call everyday things in the Royal Navy and the Royal Army. And we were over there and they said, it's time for scran. I'm like, scran? What's that? They're like, you know, scoff. I'm like, scoff? Scran and scoff? Yeah, scran and scoff were slang terms. One the Army uses more commonly, one the Navy uses more commonly to mean lunch or food. Um, the oh. word scoff, if you look it up, it has 15 possible definitions. Like, I I don't know of a word with, like, that many definitions. It's a ton. It means being cynical, being a food critic, uh, eating, food, derision, doubting, so many things. So, but scran and scoff mean eating. Uh, scran spe- specifically means lunch in a Royal Navy galley, or scoff means lunch in a Royal Army uh, cookhouse. <laughs> oh, it's a cookhouse and a galley, is a it? A cookhouse and a galley. All right, Josh, so you and I just got back home. It's Halloween, uh, or it was Halloween yesterday, and we just had uh, three days of playing Magic at the Magic 30th anniversary celebration in Las Vegas. Um, We kind of documented last time how, you know, it it turned out to be a little more exclusive than we were expecting. There were some problems associated with getting in and being able to sign up for the events that we wanted, maybe because we were assuming it would be like events we'd gone to in the past. But now we're back. What are your impressions of that whole thing? Well, Ben, I mean, it was it was not what I was expecting. And in some ways, that was a good thing. And in some ways, that was a bad thing. Um, like you said, we had this this preconceived notion of what these events look like based on every other one that we've ever been sure. to. Sure. It was just going to be a traditional Grand Prix. And a, tradi- of- and a traditional Grand Prix looks like a, an undecorated giant warehouse of a room at a convention center or at a big hotel somewhere. It's just an enormous open room with as many folding tables and chairs stacked as tightly as possible. And then maybe some vendors on the far outsides. And that's basically it. And a bunch of, a ton of people milling around playing magic here and there. And the main event and center of the whole thing was some tournament that would end in a big prize and status as a recognized magic professional. Right. And the idea, you would show up, you would sign up for what you wanted to do and you would do it. And that that's what these things in yesteryear were. Well, Wizards changed the, the norm on this one. I think they set the bar differently. I, I It is probably higher. They probably did set the bar higher. Um, right off of the bat, the production values of this tournament were the highest I've ever seen. And it was actually really kind of nice. Um, the entire area was split into two sections. The front section was all decked out with like the vendor and the artist's. And they had like a main stage area where they had stuff going on all the time. And on the other side, they had the World Championship Tournament, which was all happening digitally. They had like big TV cameras and stuff broadcasting that full time. 
And then the entire other half of the area was the play space, the traditional like just thousands of tables laid side by side with all the folding chairs you could get your hands on in a tri-state area. I wouldn't just say the other half. It was like the back half. And and I think that was deliberate. It was you had to walk through all of the art and vendors and main stage and world championship to get to the, the gaming part that was almost relegated to the back where it used to be front and center. Yeah, it it almost was like it was deliberate. Well, before the gaming portion, like showing up and sitting down at a at a at a low grade card table and playing cards was the the centerpiece. That was the focus of attention. And this time they set it on equal footing with all of the kind of the culture surrounding the game. The artists signing autographs and the people dressed up in costumes and the sets representative of the magical worlds that are the lore of the game. That was one thing I will say they did that I, that had me entranced from the second I got there oh, is they had too. little areas like cordoned off where, I mean, it was probably what, like 50 feet by 50 feet, little squares. Yeah. Where they little, would little mock up rooms. Yeah. And they like one of them looked like a like a tavern from a certain plane and they had decorations that looked like you could name the plane that it was from. And they had little tables set up that were all in theme and there's only a handful, but you could sit down there and be in that plane and play some magic and they would have a cosplayer a professional cosplayer of a planeswalker from that plane hanging out in that section, just like being a part of it all. And they were all so radically different from each other. You could, it really did feel like go like walking around from plane to plane, like in the nerdiest way ever. And I just, I loved it so much. Yeah, me too. So I want to say something about all of that. And that is about two months before this happened. I think it's the first time I mentioned it on the podcast. My son, uh, Jairus, who's 20 years old, decided that, when he heard about Magic 30, he asked me if he could go, and then he told me he wanted to sign up for a formal cosplay competition that they would be having during the tournament. And that involved a lot. There was a whole bunch of stuff that went with the. There was an application process, and you and you had to show them photos of your co- your costume in progress, and it had to be a certain amount percent complete before the contest. You had to apply and get in, and and he applied, and they told him he wasn't in. He wasn't going to be in the competition he just wasn't done enough at the time or no what? no they just sent him like a generic kind of like a job application like sorry you weren't the candidate we were interested in without any feedback about what the problem was they didn't they didn't say well you're the fourth chase we've got we've already got three others they just said sorry we're full <laughs> sorry the character you picked is too mainstream and the the first time I think he missed the deadline and then they apparently didn't get enough applicants as many as they wanted. So they extended the deadline and then he applied and then they told him no. And so I, I sat him down. I'm like, so what are you going to do? Are you going to finish the costume and bring it anyway? He's like, yeah, I think I am. So he kept working on it. And then like a week later, they sent me an email and said, hey, we had an opening. Are you still interested? Which is awesome. And obviously he got in because I saw him wearing the costume. Yeah. And, and- it was phenomenal. Yeah, yeah. And him and his mother, I'll link in the show notes. It went. It was on Twitter. It was on streaming. It was all over the place. I'm linking the show notes. He made this fantastic uh, costume that looked like it was pulled straight out of the cards. One of the most famous characters. I told him he had the interesting experience. Unlike you walking around in your um, ninja from uh, Link. Uh, yeah, yeah, my Yiga Blade Master. I bet, Nobody knew who I, I bet was. no one knew who you were. But at this convention where Jairus was dressed up as Jace Balaran, I bet there was not a soul in the entire building that didn't know who he was. 
Oh, on instantly. There were people that named the card that he came from based on the face paint that he was wearing. Right. So if you were to fold the tournament in half as when it started and when it ended, right in the center point was this cosplay contest. Right in the middle of this, the middle day. And it was on the main stage and people gathered around and packed the seats and cheered at all the people on stage dressed as their favorite characters. And so... Once he was done with that, he was still in his costume, and I said, let's go over to those sets you were talking about. I think there were six of them, and let's have you go through all of those sets and pretend to be doing things just like a planeswalker would. You're actually walking the planes. And we went to each set, and he was pretending to read the books and make potions and and stir the witch's cauldron and fly on the weather light, all kinds of things, and it was fantastic, Josh. I was tickled pink. I wish you'd been there. I was just giggling and laughing the whole time as he, as we were literally planeswalking from plane to plane to plane dressed as a planeswalker. The photos turned out great. It's so awesome. Now, Jarris killed it. Like, that costume was phenomenal. Like, I, I was floored by the fact that he went out of his way to get colored contacts to make sure his eyes matched what the characters were supposed to be. Yeah. I, I, you could tell that he put a ton of effort and time and, and his heart and soul into the thing. And I'm... It, What's also amazing is that I feel like it really brought him out. Like every time I saw him like taking pictures with people that asked to take pictures with him or when he was on stage, like he seemed so much more animated than he was the rest of the time there. Yeah, and you can tell that's something he's really passionate about. Now, Jairus is also the one that plays the little piano ditty uh, that, that is our transition music. So um, he's got definitely some artistic tastes. He likes playing Magic the Gathering. I think it, I think he had like a nine and two record in events in in the tournament. So he's a respectful Magic player. But I think he was probably runner up. Now, as a surprise, he came back from the back room and they had given him uh, a participation certificate, which he laid in front of me on the table and says, "Dad, they gave me a participation certificate." I'm like, "That's great." And he said, "And these." And he threw two packs of Magic Thirtieth Edition cards on the table yeah these are the packs that we talked about four of them cost a thousand dollars so he threw five hundred dollars of unopened cards on the table in front of me and i was like are those with i can't (laughs) did you know this was going to happen he was like no they just gave them to us backstage and i was like what so i never thought i would even see one of these packs josh and now there's two of them on the desk beside me Oh, you haven't opened them yet? Oh, open them. <laughs> right now on the podcast. I, I want to see that gray ogre. They're not mine. <laughs> and I, as soon as you told me that that's what he had received as part of his participation award, I immediately turned to him and said, like, you're going to open them right now in front of me, right? And of course, no, he did the smart thing and he's going to, it sounds like he's going to sit on them and let them appreciate to ridiculous levels before he sells them off. Yeah. So, uh, that's the smart thing to do. That was interesting because we talked so much about this on the last episode of the podcast. And now here we are that I'm actually in position or sort of him and his mother did all the work and they did a phenomenal job. I love how you take credit for the stuff your kids do. They are not yours, <laughs> Ben. You're in possession of nothing. All right. So there was also a lot going on with the fact that th- there's this is a significant thing to have a 30th anniversary of a collectible trading card game. And so the designer of the game, Richard Garfield, was there. Uh, the the you know creator of the game, the head designer, Mark Rosewater, who's been the head designer for 27 years, was there and was a prominent speaker. And apparently he is a big fan of magic cosplayers. So while my son was backstage, Mark Rosewater came up to him and asked for his photo with him. So my son came out with a photo on his phone of Mark Rosewater. And usually you or I might ask Mark if we could take our picture with him, but he asked my son. So that was fantastic. That's awesome. Now, 
while we were in the back, you and I joined up for numerous events. I know we didn't all get into the ones we wanted to get into. I wanted to be in the modern main event that had a chance of playing a beta draft, and I didn't get into that, so I just had to console myself with two, like, just almost like consolation modern events that were just best to, you know, play three matches and win some prizes. And, and you wrecked face like you destroyed your opponents in those in those constructed formats. So that just makes you sad thinking about what the what the big tournament must have been like. Yeah, it was almost like I was taking my frustrations out on people. Sorry, opponents. <laughs> I brought this highly tuned specific deck to a sort of casual event and just crushed people. Yeah. So there was the cosplay. There was the games events going on. There was the artists. There was the speakers. There was the founders. There was the pomp and circumstance. All of that. And it felt like there was a little bit of something for everyone. Not everyone. Not everyone. And I think that's that's where it started, it started to fall apart, at least for me. Like, yes, this had great production values and it felt good. But I'll tell you one thing, Ben. I was there on Friday and you weren't. I showed up Friday when the doors opened and you guys didn't roll in until like everything was shut down that night and your first event was on Saturday. Boy, howdy, Friday was rough. I had an event, like it was supposed to be the first event that happened the day. Like the doors opened at one and all the first events started at two and I signed up for an event that started at two. Ben, it took a full hour to kick things off and it was because of poor planning on the part of the, the tournament organizers. Do you think... First of- Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I, I mean, so new since the last, since you and I founded the episode one of the Bad at Magic podcast at Grand Prix Las Vegas in, in 2019, uh, they have done things completely differently since then. They've introduced the companion app, which has people with, you know, their access to the event in their pocket now instead of going to a piece of paper or on a board. And we talked about that at length yes. in, in previous podcasts where yesteryear you would have had to wait for the tournament to start and then go find your name on a board and then go sit down. Now they can push that out to you on your phone. But this was all new during the COVID quarantine. It had never, ever been tested at this scale a- a- anywhere that I know of. Well, right. And so first of all, there was – here's the thing is there was huge, huge problems getting things started on Friday. And it was because of a couple of key pieces of information were never pushed out to the public. Yeah. Number one, like you said, the app, you can join a tournament on your phone and then all of the information for the tournament gets pushed to you. The problem is in order to join one of the one of the events, you have to have a specific code, an identifier that says, hey, I am a part of this tournament. Please let me join it. And nobody had that code. And so we all showed up and the, the organizers, which there was at least a thousand players for every one person that was running this tournament. <laughs> And we were all standing around like, hey, what do we do? And they're like, oh, you put the code in your phone. And everybody in unison screamed at them, what code? And apparently, when we signed up for the tournaments months and months and months ago, like when I called you in a panic saying, hey, we have to get signed up right now or else we're not going to be able to do anything, they emailed us the code. And lo and behold, going back to my email from three months ago, yes, there is a code associated with it. I didn't know what it was, and nobody else did either. It didn't say in the email that this is the code you're going to put in the companion app to join the event. And it took us a frightening amount of time to pry that information out of the tournament organizers. There was this disconnect between they're like, you just need to put in the code. And we're like, we don't have any codes. What are you talking about? Finally, somebody had a full conversation with them and realized, oh, they don't know what we're talking about. And then they made an announcement. You were emailed. Then everybody went to their phone and it was fine. That was one problem. The next problem was, oh, this, this one was a nightmare. 
for this tournament that I signed up for specifically, the same code was emailed to two different tournaments that were starting at the same time. And so it took the tournament organizers a frighteningly long time to figure out that we have twice as many people signed up for this event that shouldn't be here. And this other event is completely empty before they recognized, oh, crap, the people that signed up for this one are in the wrong queue and they got the wrong code. We need to push out a new code. And then they just started holding up signs. It's like, if you signed up for the tournament at two o'clock, this is the code you're supposed to be using. And at one point I put in that code thinking like, oh, I'm supposed to be using that code because that's what they said. But then I was like, hang on a second. That's missing a couple of key details. And I like shouldered my way to the front of the crowd and got into a judge's face. I'm like, what is that code for specifically? It's for the two o'clock tournament. Which one? Oh, for this one. I'm like, I didn't sign up for that one. He goes, oh, well, then you used your original code. And so that took an insanely long amount of time to, to sort out. Can you imagine what it's like to be them? It, you know, oh, just, uh, yeah, it was awful. It, it, just one person made a mistake three months ago and they're left holding the bag trying to sort it out. So, but this is uh, here. How, how, how much right. later than, than yeah, advertised yeah, getting, did your event start? Thank you. Keeping me on track. I'm getting way too much in the details. One, they didn't tell us what, like where we could find the codes for the tournaments to put in the companion app. Two, we had no idea where any of these things were taking place. This tournament play area was enormous. Like from end to end of this hall was what, 200 yards? There, I'm not exaggerating when I say there were upwards of 7,000 tables and they were all uniquely numbered and you had to sit down at a specific one. So it's not like you can just be on one side of the hall listening for announcements because they had five different stages all announcing different things at different times. So nobody knew where to go. Nobody knew what time anything was actually going to start and nobody knew what codes to put in. And so all this had to get ironed out the first day. Like my event started, was supposed to start at two. It didn't start until three. And then after it got started though, it ran like clockwork like it was supposed to. I got the notifications on my phone when I was supposed to move, when the round was over, when I was supposed to go find my new opponent, all of that stuff. Yeah, if they were trying to do this the old way where they were putting out pieces of paper and you all had to go look at the board, I don't. there wasn't room in that venue. It wouldn't have worked. Oh, but for a couple of them, Ben, I didn't tell you this, but a couple of the tournaments that were supposed to happen at two o'clock that day, they did. They gave up on the companion app and they did print out brackets and they did post them up to boards. Huh. And the they, they were just art boards that were not meant to have stuff stuck up to them. And so I was I was in a line. <laughs> this is how I was told which table to go to for deck construction is my table was posted on a piece of paper on the wall. And I had to go up to it and find my name along with 2,000 other people in a venue that wasn't built to have 2,000 people crowding one board at the same time. And I watched uh, 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 another tournament person in front of me that put their finger up on the piece of paper and start scrolling down like you do. But the tape was was garbage tape sticking to a garbage surface. And she pulled the whole piece of paper off of the thing and it fell to the floor. <laughs> And like, just imagine like that piece of paper had 400 names on it, Ben, 400 people needed to look at that piece of paper in order to figure out where to go. And now it's on the floor and she's desperately trying to get it up in this press of bodies that won't let her bend her knees. Oh, wow. wow. And then when, when I finally elbow my way to the front of this crowd to look for my name, it was listed. All right. So it was first name, my full first names for everybody that was attending the first three characters of your last name. Oh, and yeah. It 
And it was not sorted alphabetically. It was sorted by the date you purchased entry into the tournament. Wow, what a nightmare. So so you turn five seconds of look. If you multiply by however many people are trying to look yep. at it, and if they were sorting alphabetically, maybe it would take two seconds. But because it's three letters and the first character sorted by the date they bought it, it must have it must have multiplied that by five. Uh, as a computer scientist, I should know precisely like the big O calculations to tell you how much longer it takes to search yeah, that list. Yeah, you, you were using a list. much less efficient sorting algorithm. Yeah, I was. And so basically every single person had to review the entire list every time. And not only that, but I had to scroll down looking for Joshua. And then like there's, of course, 15 people named Joshua. So I got to stop at Joshua, go to their digits. Are those the first three characters of my last name? Because you're not reading your last name. You're reading the first three letters of your last name, which is different. Wow. What a disaster. And, uh, it, it, was, it was a nightmare. But, and so we, but that's what we, happens when something goes wrong and a human has to improvise in the moment. I get it. We started an hour late. I still got to do the things I wanted to do. I got to play a couple of rounds. And then after round two, I went to the bathroom and I ran back out and I looked at my phone like, okay, good. The new stuff hasn't come out yet. I guess I'm good to go. And then my phone start, did a weird thing where the round timer started over. Where it's like, oh, the, we're waiting for the round to finish. And it went from like five, four, three, two, one, zero, And it clicked back up to one hour. I'm like, huh, that's weird. And I waited like another 15 minutes for an announcement and there was nothing. I'm like, I guess we're taking a break. And I wandered around for a while. Like I, we're taking an hour break between rounds for some reason. I guess it is kind of dinner time. Maybe people were hungry. And then after that ticked down to zero, I went back. I'm like, hey, what happened to this tournament? And they're like, oh, didn't hear the announcement. There wasn't enough time. We canceled the last round. Like, oh, so I've been here for two extra hours for no reason. So they, I assume at some point they made like a loud announcement on the PA system and they assumed that was good enough. I, I You know, they but didn't know a, you'd gone to the bathroom. Yeah, I, that's, that's bad on me for not being there to hear the announcement. And they had two types of PA. They had the big PA, which was the whole place. And then they had the little PA, which was just for this little section of the tournament grounds. Anyway, like... Day one was a cluster. Even getting into the building was a cluster. Nobody knew where yeah. to go. Nobody knew what the lines were. Like, it was bad. Everyone had you... to go through the health screening and the COVID masks and vaccination records. And You came in on, on Saturday. or Yeah, the first time you came in there was Saturday. And right. I, gave you, I, I gave you all of my lessons learned before yeah. you walked in Thank the building. Thank you. I, I, I told you. I, I sincerely and deeply appreciated the fact that... That in a literal and figurative sense, you had taken a bullet already. Uh, yeah. All right. So I'm, I have more things to complain and be negative about, but we should transition and do something positive first. So Ben, tell me about a positive experience that you had with this tournament that was different from any other. So it really was different. I think this game over the past 30 years has grown from something that a couple of nerds do in a comic book store to a worldwide phenomenon. It's a place of expression, of creativity, of art, of storytelling, of competitiveness, of uh, bonding between generations and across time. I mean, it is so many things to so many people. And there was definitely, you could see the effort there to try to give equal time and space to all of those things that this game is to all of those people. And to all of those people, there was something there for you. 
And I found myself, like I said, I was tickled pink as I was walking the planes with my son in full cosplay costume. And I enjoyed sitting at Mark Rosewater's feet and listening to him reminisce over his favorite memories from the past 30 years as he created Magic the Gathering. And I was thrilled to walk over to the stage where they were holding the world championships and watch um, Marshall Sutcliffe and Paul Cheon announce over the modern Magic Arena the gather magic the gathering arena client that appears to be the future of the game you know who the new world champion is but that was almost like a side event rather than the main event and then in the back all of the players everyone you said before young and old there was people there as young as like eight years old and as old as 80 years old and there was male and female and every mixture and choice of gender and race and background and from all over the earth everyone you can think of was there and everyone i hope walked away with something a reminder of why they love this game and why it's still going strong after 30 years oh ben you did exactly what i wanted you to do and you you painted us the 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 bright sunny picture of everything that was there and now that we've had that moment of gloriousness that's that i'm going to drag us all back down into the the bad parts of it and so uh, there's two things I want to talk about that that were a huge problem. That was not just me that had an issue with this, but like you can go on social media and just people burned this to the ground on on two key points. And the first one was on demand events. So we talked about this in the last episode is that we were hoping that there was going to be on demand, which meant that there was nothing to sign up for in advance, like a draft. All right. So for Magic Gathering in a draft, typically you grab eight people and a box. You sit down at a table and you start. And like you, those eight people play like a whole little mini event all by themselves. It usually takes about two hours. And at every other event we've ever been to, they don't, they aren't pre-planned. They just say, oh yeah, we're going to have on-demand drafts of these formats all day. And you walk up to a counter and you say, I want to do this one. And they say, okay, we'll put you on the list. As soon as we get eight people, we'll announce it over the loudspeaker. You come back here and we'll sit you down. And we'll get you started. I think part of that is because there may be some people that come and that's their only intent is to do on-demand events. But really, it's to catch the ones that entered the main event and lost too many times and are no longer in competition for the top prize and want to drop out and still have a chance to win some prizes doing something else. Well, I mean, even... <laughs> It doesn't matter what the justification is. Okay. If you look at it from if you look at it from a, from a corporate standpoint, you have a tournament, you have a jar that is the time and the space that's allotted to you, uh-huh. and you fill it with the marbles that are the major events that you sign up for in advance. Right. You got a room full of people that want to play Magic. Why not take some of those extra tables over there and and fill the space in between the marbles? Yes, you fill the space between the marbles with rice, and that rice represents money in your pocket and 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 capacity and flex and slack that you have as the tournament organizer. Why not monetize it by having on-demand events running all the time? Uh-huh. Well, they didn't. They just they just freaking didn't have any on-demand events. And Ben, like I know you are a constructed modern guy, and you went there to play constructed modern, and you did a couple of sealed events, and I get that, and you had a great time. I was sorely disappointed the whole time because all I wanted to do was draft. Like I deliberately didn't sign up for anything on Saturday because I wanted to do at uh, on-demand drafts all day. I just wanted to go into pods and have fun and do different formats and just do crazy nonsense all day. And that just didn't happen. No. I did go in first thing Saturday morning because I wasn't the only one that complained about this. And they did. I started asking around like, hey, I heard there was going to be some on-demand events. Where are they? Oh, you have to go over there. Oh, you have to go over there. And I went 
<laughs> it was this tiny far corner. And like, I had to find a line of dudes that were, that were relegated way off to the side, away from everything. And I said, is this where the on-demand is? They go, yes, this is the line for on-demand. And I stood at the back of it. And I stood in that line for 30 minutes before somebody came by and he counted everybody. And he goes, okay, you, from you forward, you are 32 people. We're going to do four draft pods. Everybody come with me. And then we all went up to a desk and we all paid and signed in or whatever. They did that twice that I'm aware of. They pulled two sets of 32 people, had them sign up and pay, and then actually fired off these drafts. And then that was all of the on-demand events that happened that day. Huh. Okay, a question for you. Do you think there will be a lesson learned there, or do you think that's the intent going forward? you think they'll change it next time, or, or is this the new normal? I, I, it doesn't make sense to me that this is the new normal. It makes no sense. Like I was saying, you're already putting on this event. You already have a threshold of, of organization. You have the venue. You have the, the area. Like you have the tables and the chairs for people to sit down and play at. And it's not like there's not even an extra manpower footprint because I'll tell you right now, Ben, once I had paid, they, they took one judge to grab eight of us. They sat us down. They gave us the product and they gave us the paper with our names on it in the tournament bracket structure and set it down with the prizes. They had the prize tickets that they were handing out, the whole sum that everybody was going to get based on all the winnings or whatever, and set it on the middle of the table. And they said, you all are going to keep each other honest. Here's how the tournament runs. Have fun. And he left never to be seen again. And we were all left to kind of police ourselves. So if you're looking at it from that perspective, like if you're not planning on having a full-time judge for these events, you need like three extra people to fire off on-demand events just nonstop all day. And you can make so much money. Yeah, it does feel like they're leaving some on the table there. I, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to say to that. Well, and here's the other thing. People are like, oh, well, it was kind of tight. There was places where there wasn't really a lot of room. But the counter argument to that was the next gripe that I had about this whole thing. And that was the debacle of the command zone. Okay, go ahead. Oh, okay. I will describe. So uh, I already said that the whole back half of this place was was just 200 yards long and just nothing but tables for play. What I didn't say was that play space was subdivided into different sections. There was the five colored sections, the colors of mana and magic, the gathering white, blue, black, red, green in order, of course. But there was also on the far side, I would say, what do you think, Ben? Like at least um, like a third of the, all the play space? Yeah, was yellow. Was yellow. And that was designated the command zone. The intent for that being that if you, one of the formats you can play is commander. And that's um, on the internet, everybody says that commander is the most popular form of magic that you can play. Right. So they dedicated a third of the play space to it, which makes sense. Which makes sense until you realize that that entire area was fenced off, had gatekeepers, and you couldn't get in unless you paid a cover charge of $350 per person. Was that so was that so you could get prizes? No, there was no prizes. That was, was just that so you could so you could buy cards. That so you could enter the dedicated play space for the casual format that is commander. That was just to keep people out. That was just so, yeah, that was just to keep the rest of the riffraff out. It worked. It, and that's the joke. That, that was the running gag because I'll tell you right now, on Friday, I saw about a dozen people in all of those tables. There were hundreds of tables. I saw a dozen people, tops. And what's really funny, it's not, it's, it's not like people weren't playing Commander. 
I mentioned those different planes with the little tables out in the, in the artsy area. Every one of those tables was full of people playing Commander. Out in front of the building, outside in Las Vegas, on the concrete ground, people were everywhere, sitting in groups of four, playing games of Commander on the street in the sun. And it was just crazy because everybody was pointing out, everybody. There's a great uh, Twitter thread where they showed a picture of this enormous empty play space where you had to pay 350 bucks to play Commander. And then a, right next to a picture of hundreds of people sitting outside on the ground playing Commander. This feels like a, almost a, an epic version of one of these great corporate miscalculations. Yeah. It's like, they're, they, I don't know. They just missed. Like, it's like, like, like Coke 2. <laughs> you know, where they just got some focus groups and thought they'd planned out what people want. And that was not it. Well, and you can see they're trying to come up with ways to monetize Commander. But Commander is a casual format. There is no real tournament structure. People don't play. Like, there is competitive Commander, but that's kind of a niche. Like, most people, like, I had a Commander deck. I don't play, I haven't played Paper Magic in three years, and I brought a Commander deck to Magic 30 expecting to play games of Commander to fill the time. We played some. We we played we played a commander game. We with stole your sons. we stole some play space in between events. <laughs> and I have never hated squirrels so much. <laughs> and I'll tell you what, and you would, that's an interesting thing to point out because you, me, and your sons, the four of us, sat down, we found some empty space, we sat down in the tournament area and we busted out a game of commander. And Ben, in the one hour that we were sitting there playing, how many times we did were judges walk by? by maybe five different judges. Coming by and just letting us know, hey, you're fine right now, but we might need to kick you out of here any minute. We're like, we know we're scheduled for the next event that's going to happen in this space. <laughs> but I mean, that just tells you right there that the focus was not on letting people gather to play Magic the Gathering the way they wanted to play it. Yeah. So anyway, they're trying to find ways to monetize Commander. And the first day was a disaster train wreck because they were gatekeeping people out. The second day on Saturday, they partitioned half of it off. And it was no longer gate kept, and we know that because we sat down and ate lunch there. Right. That we just walked in, sat down and ate lunch, and there were other people sitting around like trading cards and like just kind of doing magic-y stuff. Stuff that you need a table for, essentially. And then the last day, Sunday, it looked like it was just they had just opened the floodgates because that place was full and there's no way all those people paid three hundred bucks to sit there. There's a lot of stuff on the fringe of all this that I kind of am curious about what will happen. Like what what about the people that paid and it was non-transferable, non-refundable, and didn't make it? Like, are they just screwed or are they going to find a way to get their money back? What about the people that paid $350 to get in the command zone and now they throw the floodgates open? Are they going to give those people their money back? What? Uh, here's another one. What about people who went there and for whatever reason left something valuable out on the table and walked away? Because, you don't know this, but after you left, my sons and I left, and we got back to our room and realized we'd left a box there at the venue I had, left a box there at the venue that was filled with our prizes. No. Yes. What, filled. You just like like your tickets, or what like, what'd you actually get? It was it was a box this size. Yeah, one of the, like... The, it, was, right, so it was filled with unopened packs, including uh, double Masters Collector's Editions packs that are worth about $80 Ooh. each. Oh, bad. And you just left it on a table. Left it on the table. Got back to the room, opened up my backpack, trying to just get everything ready to, to board on the plane next day and realized I didn't have it. 
What, did you guys just sprint back to the venue and track it down? So it was an hour from the venue closing for good, the last day of the tournament. Oh. And I was like, what, well, what are we going to do? And my sons were kind of upset. Not My sons, the 30th anniversary edition collector's packs were not in it, but everything okay. else was. Okay. So, like, the big prize was not in there, but all the other stuff was. Right. So we were like, well, I guess we're going back to the venue. And we were kind of worn out and done and didn't want to go back. So we kind of just steeled ourselves and got another Uber and drove back to the venue and got there with about 30 minutes left. It was closing down. People were filing out. The staff looked tired and worn out. And we got to find out on the fringes. Like, I was wondering about what happens to people that need refunds and stuff. So we kind of split up. You know, we did the Scooby-Doo. You go back to where we were playing. You go to the information desk. I'll go over here and ask a judge. And we were all over the place. So they sent me to one lost and found location. That wasn't it. Went to another lost and found location. They finally filtered us to the last one. And all three of us kind of convened on this last place all at the same time. All of us there. (laughs) And I'm asking the person at the lost and found if she found a box that was filled with boosters and stuff like that. I said, I think it was a Dominary United booster box. And it was kind of, I couldn't remember uh, it from a, yeah, the art and the from a bundle. Was, yeah. yeah, yeah. I just couldn't remember. It just got abstracted away in my head. And she was like, well, what does it look like? I was like, oh my gosh. All right. So for listeners, like there are these things. It was a, a like not a booster box. What are they called? Cla- like, clamshell bundle box. Yeah, bundle boxes. These things Magic has been producing forever. It's like the size of a person's shoe. And they have different art on them. And every set has one. Like these things are, are there are multitudes of them. And so it's impossible to uniquely identify them. Yeah, but I, I think I knew enough about what was inside of it that I could describe it to her. So I start describing it to her, and she reaches under the desk, and she pulls it out. Oh, the one that you were looking for. Yeah, and so I was like... <laughs> and, nice. And then she takes it, and she opens it, and she peeks inside of it, and she looks at me, and she's like, so describe some of the stuff that's in here. <laughs> like you would do if like, hey, I lost my wallet. Yeah, yeah. Did you really... Or did you did you just hoping if somebody it was a wallet, wallet that didn't have anything inside of it with your name on it? <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense, and because again, this you could have been from her perspective, you could have just been a guy like um, trying to milk the lost and found for some stuff. Absolutely. Now, hey, I left a bunch of stuff worth a ton of money here. Did you find it? Now, all the way leading up to this moment, there was all that uncertainty that was clouded over our heads, like. We were coming back to this venue. We'd been gone for an hour. That had sat on the tables. The event had ended. It would have been just like clear tables with just a conspicuous box sitting there, either on top of the table or under the table or something, where anyone could have seen it. And they would open it up and see that anyone in the room would know that the contents inside were probably worth several hundred dollars. Yes, absolutely. And so the question that was hanging over mine and my son's heads was, what about this community? Like... And we had this kind of running philosophical argument all the way there. What would you do if you found it? What do you think other people did? What What if, you know, they took it? What if we don't find it? What, those kinds of things. And we just had this discussion. So the whole time we're looking, that all those possibilities are running through the head. What if we don't find it? So, of course, we're we're proceeding through this process as if someone found it, turned it in intact, and we just needed to get it back. And we were just fighting the bureaucracy to find out where that place actually was as opposed to fruitlessly looking for something that no longer existed. Okay. 
So when she pulled it out, I saw it and knew that was the one. I was able to successfully describe enough of the contents inside that she gave it to me with a note on top. We'll never know who our generous benefactor was, but I'd like to say I feel like a little bit of my hope in humanity was upheld. That a box left with no name and no identifying characteristics in the middle of this giant venue full of thousands of people, someone did for that what I would have done had it not been mine. Yeah, yeah. And I uh, I have to be the bookend, the other end of the, the shelf on this one, because I'll agree with you that in the abstract, like as a, as a, as a group, the average morality of magic players is probably on the, the lawful side. And they did the right thing and turned in loss of found or just left it alone. More likely people saw the box, realized, ah, oh, somebody left their box, that sucks, and then kept walking. Yeah, I don't know. But, I don't know if a judge found it or if someone picked it up and turned it in or whatever, but yeah. I'll I'm willing to bet it was just left there by everyone until a judge picked it up. And I will say that as as a group, it was nice that they left it there. You and I both have met and dealt with and played against individuals in this community that would have picked that would have looked around, picked that box up, put it in their backpack and never said a word about it. Uh, yes, I'd agree with that. And, and this brings us full circle back to our uh, logical fallacy of composition division. <laughs> yes, yes. There are outliers of the community that, that as, as a whole, the bell curve obviously left it for lost and found so you could come reclaim it. But there are individuals um, as outliers that would have stolen it. So as much time as we've taken to complain about the problems, the cost, the confusion the organization, the differences of this event. All in all, I would say I I had a better time at Magic 30 than I did at Grand Prix Vegas 2019. I felt like a part of the community. I had a great time playing. I enjoyed all the side events. I'm proud of this game. I'm proud to be a member of this community. And, I ha- and I'm looking forward to doing it again. So... On the last day that I was there, um, at one point you pulled out your phone and you set it on the table and you started recording a sound clip and we had an ad hoc conversation about our initial knee-jerk reactions to everything that was happening. And we talked about a lot of the same things that we've talked about here on this podcast, but it was more immediate. It was more visceral. It was more of the emotional reaction for me and less of the the thought, the thoughtful reaction. And I'll tell you, Ben, on the, the days that I've since I've been there and like on the flight home and like ever since it all happened, I've been thinking about it because I have all of these negative things to say and I have these negative experiences that came away from it, but I still had an amazing time and I'm still sad that it's over. Hmm. And so in this time that I've been trying to like rectify my experiences with these feelings, what I've settled on is I've realized um, this is that, yeah, I've got stuff to complain about because that's who I am. I'm a pessimistic guy. I'm looking at the half is always half empty. Somebody stole the top half of my water. How dare they? But (laughs) what I will say is this was probably the the best event that I'd ever been to as far as production values, as far as you could tell, the people putting it on cared. They cared more about the community and more about making it a memorable event than they did for milking us for cash. Because if they were just trying to milk us for cash, none of that extra stuff would have been there. There would not have been a cosplay contest. There would not have been all of these artful worlds set up just for just for the whimsy of walking through different magic IPs, right? And so what I'm settled on is that this was a prototype. This was the first go of somebody in the background that 
that is trying to reconcile the the corporate need to turn a profit with delivering something that the community would love and enjoy. And I hope that I think that this could be great. I think that version five of what we went to is going to be phenomenal, phenomenal and an unmissable event. Like um, it just needs some some polishing. It needs the rough edges taken down. It needs a couple of more experimental things to have happen. But they're going to figure it out and they're going to implement new ways to do things. Oh, man, Ben, I would love to see some kind of online um, on-demand event functionality where I can go to a website and sign up for an on-demand event right now from my seat without having to move around and it fires off on my phone just like it should. Like like just that. If they had that while I was there, it would have been a perfect experience for me. Hmm. Yeah. So I, I'm I, – where whereas I'm saying all these negative things and how much like it was bad and how many bad experiences I had – I am very, very hopeful for the future of these events. Yeah. Well, I think even the fact that you're willing to give it another shot says a lot about it. Yeah. If you're willing, if you can get past my negativity, I mean, that's saying a lot right there. So three years ago, you and I sat down around a microphone in a hotel room in Las Vegas and founded this podcast. And 84 episodes later, we're still going strong. We're still bad at magic. (laughs) But we, we still, wore, but we, we still love it. We wore our jerseys. They said "Bad at Magic" on the back, and I'll tell you what—that was a hit. Everybody loved our jerseys. People man. kept asking me where they could buy one. Yeah, it was great. It's like, oh yeah, because we're bad at magic. So, if you just listen to the Bad at Magic podcast for the first time, welcome. We're glad to have you as part of the community of listeners. If I beat you at a match and I was a little bit ruthless about it, I'm sorry. I I, I love my opponents. I just really want to win. <laughs> I hope that you enjoy magic as much as I do. And hopefully you also came away with a good experience and maybe some hope that we can improve on the flaws and have an even greater one next time. If you like what we do, consider sharing us with a friend. I mean, if you like us, maybe your friends will like us too. If you really want to show us some love, consider taking your phone out of your pocket right now and giving us a good review on the podcast player of your choice. It is crazy. The visibility we can get from that. And if you want Ben and I to, Continue to go to random events that nobody else cares about and talk at length about how they could be better or worse. Consider becoming a patron on our Patreon page. And speaking of our Patreon page, uh, we just made another bonus episode available only to patron subscribers uh, where Josh and I talk about some of the most sympathetic bad guys in all of Villainy, episode 82.5. And we love it if you join in our patron community and get access to, I think, a half a dozen bonus episodes we got up there. Yeah, hashtag Gaston is not the bad guy. And if you had a good or bad or otherwise experience at Magic 30 or you wish you could go and didn't or, or whatever, sound off. Go on our social media pages. Go on uh, Reddit slash r slash bad at magic or go on our Facebook page and check it out. Uh, love to hear what you have to say. And until next time, try to be a little less bad at magic. 